0: The Road to Autonomy is presented by the Road to Autonomy Index. The Road to Autonomy Index is a rules-based equity benchmark index that measures the performance of a basket of global companies that are involved in the development and commercialization of autonomy. Institutional investors and fund managers are watching megatrends that are shaping investment opportunities today. These megatrends are creating thematic investment ideas and opportunities for forward-thinking investors. We believe that one of the biggest megatrends today is autonomy. That's why we created the Road to Autonomy Index, the world's first and only pure play index to track the thematic investment opportunity in autonomy. Follow the Road to Autonomy Index on your favorite finance app by simply typing in the ticker autonomy. To learn more about the Road to Autonomy Index, visit roadtoautonomy.com forward slash index. Hello and welcome to The Road to Autonomy. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Caitlin Foley, president of Uplabs. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Grayson.
0: I'm excited to have you here because what you and the team at Up Labs are doing is awesome. You're eliminating friction in the experience. You're taking a traditional luxury experience or a commercial business and you're making it more fun. You're making it usable. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do.
1: Thank you. We're having a blast working with Porsche. We just started working with a new airline corporate partner and we're going to be working in the shipping space shortly.
0: Oh, wow. Now, if you can go through and eliminate friction and make everything work on time, we're gonna be cooking. Let's start with mobility here. What are your thoughts on the current state of the mobility markets? There's a lot changing, a lot happening.
1: Absolutely. It is wild, actually. And I think it's worth defining mobility for a second because everybody defines it differently. So it uplabs the way we think about mobility is moving both people and goods from point A to point B. And our goal as an organization is to do that in a way that's faster, cleaner, safer, and more efficient. And so we love the mobility space. We're partnered with a venture fund, Up Partners. You know that in the venture capital space, they've seen like 30x growth in mobility investments since around 2013, which is crazy. But to me, it's a story of product pivots. There's been incredible movement to EVs and ultimately to autonomous vehicles. It's really the marriage between hardware and software, which I love. So we think about it as how do we build software for hardware that helps us control and get the most out of the hardware that we use on a day-to-day basis. And then there's also been soaring demand for foundational raw materials. So everything from batteries to chips. And so it's really a wild space right now. Quite chaotic, actually.
0: It's very chaotic. If you look at the raw materials, nobody's truly mapped the ecosystem from the refining. To the mining that's an opportunity to potentially. So, there's a lot of companies working on that. The product pivots around EV and autonomy, it has to happen, but without the right digital layer, it's horrible. There are some car OEMs that have done a fantastic job investing hundreds of millions of dollars of building a really great user interface, and there's other ones that haven't. If you're going to spend 160, 170, 180 thousand dollars on a new electric vehicle, why, in your opinion, is no real attention paid? To the digital user interface and the mobile app that goes along with that.
1: It's a great question. And honestly, a lot of this is around the cycles of development in the automotive space. So if you look at legacy OEMs, they work in seven to 10 year cycles. They're already thinking about, you know, 2030 and beyond this year. And so part of it is the cycles that they work in. And part of what we're doing is to help them think differently, to think like a software company. So even down to the way that they design, because they're some of the best designers in the world. And honestly, I would never step into that space and tell them what they already know about design. To me, a lot of it is, how do we enable them with the thought process and the tools to better iterate and move more quickly? And then I also think traditionally the OEMs have had less of an interface with the customer. So that's been given to dealerships and that's a whole separate issue in can of worms. But the reality is they don't have that strong interface with the customer and they're not getting that consistent feedback.
0: When do we see augmented reality work its way into the vehicles we've seen for navigation? I read the Apple patent filings recently, and Apple's looking at augmenting not just the glass, but the surface. There's a clear indication that there's a shift towards augmented reality there. And if you want to look what's public now, the Vision Pro headset, to me, is a clear indication that's going to go in the car, not on the headset eventually in the future.
1: Yeah, that's interesting as well. I mean, to me, it's a question of how long we're actually going to be driving and what that actually enhances. So there's a lot of things that have been gimmicky that have been launched that aren't necessarily helpful around the vehicle experience and don't necessarily improve safety. That's probably something I'd put maybe five to 10 years out. We work in more like a two to three year horizon. So the problem you mentioned before around supply chain and raw materials, that's a more immediate thing that I'm interested in. AR for inside of the car to me sounds like it could be a gimmick.
0: We'll see what you're working on today. You're working with Porsche. In my opinion, it's a luxury brand. It's an aspirational brand. Consumers aspire to own a Porsche, to drive a Porsche, to be a part of that. And Uplabs, you have a partnership with Porsche. And I want to give some financial numbers here. In Q1 2023, Porsche reported revenue of 10.1 billion euro, up 25.5% year over year, with an operating margin of 1.8 billion euro, up 25.4% year over year. Then the financials, Porsche is very, very healthy. Yes. The company is growing revenue. And i would be profitable revenue, the most important part of this equation. Why did Porsche and Labs come together? And what are you hoping to achieve collectively?
1: You're exactly right. Porsche is the most profitable brand within the VW group. Super, super healthy brand, heritage brand. Actually, when they IPO'd last fall they IPO'd as a luxury company, which is super interesting because that doesn't happen very often in the automotive space. And that's persisted. That view has persisted since the IPO, which is fantastic. When I think about where we play with Porsche, you know, Uplabs exists to solve white space. And we really focus on developing digital products and services that an organization cannot do internally. So it's because they don't have the capabilities or maybe they don't want to distract themselves from the core business but also can't find out in the startup ecosystem. So, you know, we talked about some of the light chaos and wildness of mobility earlier, and I'm seeing that because I work across modalities, across shipping and airlines and cars at this point in time, a little bit on retail and logistics. But the reality is there are still so many problems in this space. And while the startup ecosystem is quite healthy and there's a ton of investment in the space, there are many problems that go unsolved. So you actually touched on one earlier with the raw materials and understanding the full supply chain and kind of mapping that out. That's been a huge driver of actually stopping production lines in automotive for the past several years is lack of raw materials, lack of ultimately systems that go into the vehicle. That actually has been a first in VW's history where they've actually had to stop the line multiple times. Part of it was through the pandemic, but a lot of it's disruption in supply chain. And so there are these really painful immediate experiences that these car companies are trying to solve. And it's just really hard for them to do that on their own because they know what they're good at, which is ultimately design and manufacturing and running some of the best factory floors in the world. So that's why I winced a little bit with AR. I mean, there's some phenomenal new technologies out there that we're going to see integrated into the vehicle, but there are so many immediate things that need to get done. So that's a lot of what I get to see day to day as these really immediate problems that are sometimes unsolvable. There's
0: immediate problems facing not just Porsche, but the entire supply chain. But I want to give credit to the Porsche board. This is a previous iteration of the board. When the Porsche board made the decision to introduce the Cayenne and eventually introduce the Macan, it was a very controversial decision at that time. We are the 911, tickers P911 on the Euronext, but they made that strategic decision. And now if you look at what they're doing, the Macan, they sold 23,900 vehicles and the Cayenne sold 23,000. 400 vehicles in Q1 with a 911 sold 11,100. Over 50% of Porsche's Q1 2023 sales were SUVs. The strategy the board made work. As Porsche looks to evolve and continue to build this great heritage of luxury speed, and I owned a portion, it drives on rails. That's an incredibly fun vehicle to drive. Are you taking this outside approach and saying, okay, you're operating efficiently, you're honoring your heritage, but oh, by the way, if we layered on this, this and this, you can further accelerate your growth?
1: Absolutely. So you're right. Porsche has become the Macan and Cayenne company to some extent. And their average customer has gone from a German male in his 50s or 60s to a Chinese female in her 30s or 40s. So this is nearly dizzying for a brand. I'm supportive of this. I think you know, in the early 2000s with the launch of the Cayenne, it was really a way to future-proof the company and start to bring more customer segments into the fold. So Porsche is always going to have a healthy classic car consortium and a group of fans that love classic cars. But at the end of the day, they needed to be able to expand to other use cases. You know, we talked about like taking your kids around in your car, or for me, I'm part of what they call their driven female segment. So I'm a businesswoman who owns a Macan and I love it. I absolutely love it. It fits nearly all of my needs. I'm into the outdoors and hiking and backpacking. And so I love that car. And so it really is about expanding to meet some of the other customer demand that they've had pent up for years.
0: It's working. The numbers say it's clearly working. Another controversial statement for you, but I'm not the only one this. An all-electric 911 will be absolutely fantastically incredible. And I can't wait to buy one. Is that eventually going to happen at some point? Because we're going electric.
1: Going hybrid first. And that's usually a good sign in the Porsche world that electric is coming. So I would say yes, there were some comments by some of their engineering team in recent years that it would be impossible because of the physics of the vehicle. But they take the impossible and make it possible. So I'm going to say yes on that. That's my bet there.
0: That's what happens when you combine great engineering with great design. It's simple. One of the ventures that Uplabs is working on with Porsche is Pulse Systems, a machine learning as a service solution for capitalizing analyzing vehicle data. Why focus on the data? Is it going to the super performance aspect? Are you looking at the maintenance aspect? Or what aspect of the data are you focusing on?
1: A lot of what we do supports the corporate partners that we work with for the next decade. And if you look at where Porsche is heading, they are heading towards becoming an EV company. And they've been very public about that announcement. So by 2030, Porsche expects to launch 80% EVs off the line, which I think is extraordinary. Huge promise to the consumer and to the markets. And so what Pulse Systems is doing is helping them understand one of the most important assets on an EV, which is the battery. It's the most expensive part, $30,000 approximately per vehicle. And one of the challenges with the battery space, aside from the constrained supply chain and raw material shortages, is that... The OEM is responsible for the health of the battery for about seven or eight years after the consumer buys the vehicle. And so this is an incredible liability to have financially. So you might need to replace multiple batteries in a given short time frame that you didn't even know about. And so what we're trying to do is take live data. And what's actually incredible about our partnership with Porsche is because Porsche is allowed to acquire the companies that we build together. So that's a facet of the model. So within four years, Porsche can acquire all the companies that we launch. They are able to share a lot of proprietary data with us in the beginning that they wouldn't share with any normal startup. And so this is important because we've actually been working with the entire Taycan fleet in North America and Europe from the outset. And so we have, this is not lab data or synthetic data. We have a ton of live data About each one of these vehicles. And so that includes things like the driving behavior, charging behavior, which is really important in battery health, environmental data down to weather, temperature, and then battery performance. And ultimately that platform will expand and we'll have customers that supply batteries, that design batteries, because this feedback and information is really critical to them as well as OEMs. Another facet of our model is that we can work with competitors. So Porsche is the first and only automotive company that we'll work with as Uplabs. But at the portfolio company level, we can serve the broader market. And so ultimately we will grow you know, within the OEM space and then Porsche can acquire that company back. And that helps them not only strategic value, but some market value as well.
0: It's really smart. When I think about the battery health, a lot of different components. There's a lot of raw materials that go into it. Will you start to go down the supply chain with other OEMs and with Porsche, either from a performance, from a sustainability standpoint, basically Porsche can take control of their supply chain?
1: Well, I would love to see Porsche take more control of their supply chain. And there's a little bit of history there. So the automotive OEM space has been one of the most aggressive in pushing down their supplier margins. And this has actually been going on for decades. And so they would go in and leadership would walk the factory floor for Bosch and different tier one suppliers. And they would say, this is how you're going to make this exact part. And this is the profit margin that you're going to have on it. And so what happens is you get ultimately a very fragile business with a lot of misaligned incentives. And so now any little thing that happens, it could be a shortage, it could be a pandemic, it could be a war, ends up threatening that fragile ecosystem and causing shortages of really critical parts. And then that stops the line. But the frustrating thing is that sometimes a lower level supplier, so let's say like a tier six or a tier seven, has a delay. And that's a known quantity. That's a known fact. But Porsche doesn't know that yet. And so, one of the things that we have been looking at is could we develop a platform to help release some of that information or make it more transparent? And there are some consortium models. There's a not for profit in the automotive industry that they've been working with to do this. But it's been a very complicated problem, partially because of antitrust laws, too.
0: I'm not a lawyer. But if you look at this from a business economic standpoint... Porsche could increase their margins. And that's a very beautiful thing for a shareholder P911 stock. From the consumer side, let's say the Taycan owner standpoint, you're doing the battery health monitoring. Will this consumer owner of that vehicle get a notification, hey, time to come in to switch your battery out. So there's not one of these situations where you have a very bad customer experience on the side of the road, a battery died, but they already know ahead of time preemptively.
1: That's a great question. So the platform that we developed is B2B and Porsche controls what the consumer is going to find out. About battery health. And most of the models that we do are B2B because at the end of the day, we're empowering business users and corporations to do a better job to serve their customers and provide that experience. At the end of the day, I think from Porsche's standpoint, they want the best possible experience for every driver of every vehicle. And I would love to see them actually notify the consumer way far in advance. So it could be months down the line. But what you're referring to is taking a failure experience and making that what we call a repair experience. It's a huge value pool and that's exactly what we're trying to do. So we're trying to say, okay, we think a battery will fail in the coming months. Let's make it a repair experience this week or tomorrow so that we can save the value and then ultimately enhance the experience for the customer. Because a failure means you're going to have to go get a full replacement. It could take more time. And that actually connects to a business that we're getting ready to launch in the repair and maintenance space which I find super interesting more broadly, not just in the context of batteries, but in the context of all kinds of things that can happen with your vehicle. And so that's been a really painful space. And actually the time to repairs has doubled over the past several years. And so a huge part of the customer experience, Porsche will ultimately control kind of how they want to communicate that to the customer. But absolutely, we want to make sure that we take as many failures and make those repairs as possible.
0: Are you adding transparency as a former Porsche owner? It was $1,800 oil change. That's what it cost. And I had no idea when the vehicle was going to be ready. It was frustrating. You have to call up. Hi, is my vehicle going to be ready? Hi, is my vehicle going to be ready? Please tell me you're working on adding some transparency. That's why I can get a push notification or have some idea of what's going on.
1: A hundred percent. You hit the nail on the head. So the dealership experience, and we're focused on dealer-owned service centers. There are a bunch of different service centers out there. There's actually three tiers. There's dealer-owned, and then there is the Porsche certified centers that aren't affiliated with a dealership but are still certified and then just your typical mom and pop third-party service centers. And so all of those suffer from pain points. A lot of it is that their employee base is not focused on software. So all of a sudden there's sensor calibration that these folks are doing that they haven't been trained to do. And then because of the lack of transparency on the service center side, there's not a lack of transparency for the customer because probably the answer is I don't know sometimes when you make those phone calls and ask those questions. And what we're doing with this new company that we're getting ready to launch is we've taken all of Porsche's error codes and we're actually directing the technician to the most likely fix. And we actually had a cool experience. I can share just this part. We're launching this company in the next few weeks. But we ran the software for a technician at a downtown LA service center recently. And we were able to diagnose something in five minutes that had taken him two weeks. So it's retroactive. You know, we already had the result, but it was the same fix that he ultimately came to. And so that was awesome. That's like the aha moments that you look for in this business.
0: I've been to that service center. I bought a vehicle from that service center. And so I know it's very large. And so if you can speed up That process. It's a win. What this describing to me sounds like you're enhancing the Porsche ownership experience. As a Porsche shareholder, I'm sitting here listening. You're creating a stickiness effect. Well, why am I going to want to go somewhere else? Because every time I have a potential friction, here's Uplabs, you're solving this. Oh, the old days when this, this, and this happened. Oh, those days are gone. We got something cool now. Is that what this is doing to build stickiness and be a true luxury brand?
1: I think on one level, for sure. It, like I said before, the first level is, how do I get Porsche to think like a software company? And this is true for any corporate partner that we work with. So we're working with an airline now. How do we get this airline to start thinking in terms of iteration, product pivots, obviously within the constraints of a highly regulated industry and very safe industry, honestly. And so that's layer one. And then I think we expect that to trickle down into better experiences for the customers of all of these companies, which ultimately creates loyalty and stickiness. And then when Porsche ultimately acquires some of these companies later, they own the IP fully and they control how that's done.
0: Will that eventually go over, since Mr. Oliver Blom is both CEO of Porsche and CEO of VW, and historically the frames and have gone over, will some of that technology then go into the larger VW group or will this only live just inside of the Porsche?
1: I would love for it to go into the larger VW group. So they have a software platform called Cariad, which serves the entire ecosystem that we've had some conversations with. I think a lot of the use cases that we have, you know, particularly around battery health, for example, are very applicable to the broader VW group. And so it's funny you should mention that because one, the criteria for corporate partners that we work with is that they are part of a bigger ecosystem. So, airlines obviously have alliances. We have a retail partner that's partnered with multiple retailers in other markets. So, there's an ecosystem there. Porsche ipo but still has very strong ties and some ownership levels with the VW Group. And so, really, every corporation that we work with has those ties. And that's part of what helps us expand into the broader market more quickly. So, you know, would love to work with the VW groups carried in the future.
0: Ecosystems are fun. If you look at what Mr. Bernard Arnault built it at LVMH, Mr. Arnault built an ecosystem that's allowing all these brands to prosper. And I think Mr. Arnault did a brilliant job by putting Pharrell in charge of Louis Vuitton men. It's going to pay massive dividends for him. I'm really, really curious. The plan is to establish six new companies together with Porsche by 2025. Why six? What is the magic number behind six?
1: Okay. Also a great question. We think in terms of portfolios. And I think this is important because you are going to have business failures. These are brand new startups. They're independent entities that we're launching. This is not a step-in business or a part of Porsche. This is a fully independent business that actually both we and Porsche fund. And then ultimately it spins out into the wild and Porsche can acquire it back. But during that time, it needs to grow and scale. And so for one, it's to make sure that we have some healthy successes. I think the second thing is back to that original objective, which is to help them think like a software company. It would be great to go in and cherry pick and launch one or two things, but the reality is that's not gonna change the way that they think. It's not gonna touch multiple parts of their business and their value chain. And that's my goal actually, is if we map out some of the new ideas that we have. So another area that we're really interested in is what happens to batteries at end of life. There's not a lot of players in that space. On the recycling side, yes, but the transportation and logistics is still very ad hoc. It's still growing. And so how do we own the entire value chain around a battery? That's one of the big questions that I have. And that requires a number of point solutions. It could be that these roll up very nicely into a set of companies that have some relationship with each other. And certainly, I think that our startups that we launch are going to have relationships and partnerships with each other. But for me... In order to really transform each one of the corporations that we work with, it needs to be at least five or six companies that we launch. And it's over time, too. So there are things today that might be relevant that wouldn't have been relevant two years ago, for example. And so we're trying to hit that sweet spot around the timing. But, you know, you mentioned... The whole Louis Vuitton family of brands. And one of the things that I think is really cool about luxury is these are some of the best designers in the world, you know, for all these brands. And something that I love that we're going to continue to focus on is that software for hardware theme. So how do we enable, how do we create that digital layer, just as you said, to make these wonderfully designed products even stronger and more powerful in the future?
0: You have your off-white virtual Abel moment, or you have your Basquiat moment, you have your Andy Warhol moment. You create iconic art. Mr. Abel did it in clothing before his untimely passing, and Basquiat and Andy Warhol did it in their iconic, and we're, we're still talking about them today. And what Basquiat, Andy Warhol, and Mr. Abel, did they innovated. They took risks. Everybody thought, well, oh, we had the off-white brand. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, look what off-white did. It became a cultural phenomenon, and he went to lead Louis Vuitton men. That's what this is coming to. Back to the automotive, I've been thinking a lot about the end of life. Consumers are getting more conscious. There's a lot of data that we could cite around the consciousness of consumers. And I've been studying the supply chain and learned that we're on a potential graphite shortage, which hasn't really been talked a lot about. And we have the issues of the London Metal Exchange for the law of commodities for metals. Should we get to a point... Where consumers start to demand at the end of the life of the vehicle, let's say it's a three year lease, then it goes back out into a pre-owned certified lease for another three years, let's just call it a six year lifespan. And at the end of that six year lifespan, the vehicle goes in. Do consumers get to a point where they demand you know, what happens to that battery? How is it being recycled? What does that look like from an environmental perspective? No, not just, oh, we're going to send off to Bob the recycler. And they want to know, okay, well, Porsche is taking care of; they're taking care of the environment. Does that become a calling card in the future?
1: Absolutely, and I think the consumer today wants to understand where materials are coming from in the vehicle. And Porsche is getting to that point where they can give you information about the leather on the seats inside the car. So I think that's a very fair request. I think it will depend on how strict regulation gets. So a lot of times the consumer will trust things that are already regulated, that they know are being regulated by a government body. And so we'll see how end of life gets managed. I know there are new regulations coming in place over the next couple of years. And I know that one of the challenges is understanding the trade-offs between whether the battery should go to a recycler or whether it should be scrapped and raw materials should be removed. So there's a number of different avenues that happen at the end of a battery's life. And right now, a lot of the decisions that are being made are just manual. They're in the mind of one or two people. And so we want to get to a place with this new venture. And I'd love to talk about it in more detail once we get closer to the launch, where we can automate those decisions and where we have the data and information for teams to make decisions about battery end of life. One other thing that's interesting, and this is true in mobility more broadly, is business models change at the same time as hardware does. So VinFast, Vietnamese automotive company, part of a conglomerate, actually has a leasing program around batteries. So they don't sell the battery to, the consumer they purely lease it. And so I think we're going to see some more innovative business models in this space that help mitigate failures versus repairs and then also help us understand what happens at the end of a battery's life.
0: As those models change, I'm going to be me now. My concern comes down to the value of the brand. Porsche as we said is a luxury brand. Louis Vuitton is a luxury brand. As new services are introduced, how do you protect the value of a brand where you're not introducing something that could potentially be have a negative detrimental impact on the brand and respecting the brand and helping the brand grow while still
1: innovating? This is part of why Uplabs exists. We're big believers that a lot of these experiments need to happen outside of the four walls of the corporation. Because like you said, like I would not touch the factory floor at Porsche. I think Porsche is one of the best in the world at managing that. And they have some of the best automotive designers in the world. Can they hire the very best software developers? Not necessarily. And so that's where we come in. And I think it is important to have sets of experiments and business units that sit away from these core competencies. Every company at the end of the day knows what they are very, very good at. And Porsche knows that they have the best automotive designers in the world. That being said, I do think that we're going to see, and maybe one of the things that we'll do towards the end of our relationship with Porsche, because it's hard, is to think about how designers think in terms of performance and how we can enable digital tools that help them iterate and test more quickly. So I think that's certainly on the table, but as far as the physical design of the car, that's all Porsche.
0: You have your model, but let's remove you from the Uplabs model for for a second. And should brands, Automotive brands possibly explore creating new units to focus on the future while respecting the heritage of the brand. So you're innovating outside of the core. You understand the brand, but you're focused on the future because your consumers, at the end of the day, they're going to demand a seamless, great product, especially when we start getting at the 140, dollars dollars $167,000 price points.
1: Right. Yeah. MSRP continues to go up. There's a number of different tools that corporations use, and I think specifically automotive. So corporate venture capital arms, where they can invest in startups out in the wild. Issue is sometimes those are not always connected to that experience and directly impacting the customer's experience. Many of these companies also have internal units where they innovate. And I think those are integral. Like I would never walk into a corporation and say, stop your R&D processes and work with off labs. We are one tool in a bigger toolkit of different things that every automotive company should be doing. But I am a big fan of some separation and having different groups with KPIs that are specific to that group because I think that's the only way you're going to test and learn. While making sure that you have stability around your core business, like could not be a bigger fan of stability around a core business.
0: You have to have the stability, you have to grow the revenue. Okay, so up labs, you have your model You're doing a very, very good job on it. Overall, how should luxury brands approach electrification? There is some hesitation, as we talked about earlier with the 911. There are some hesitations with other luxury car companies, you're sitting here, you want them to think differently, you want them to think like a software company, how should they approach electrification? Should it be going back to the drawing board and building that having this wow factor wow moment? Or where should they go?
1: You know, it's interesting because companies have taken a very different approach. So some of the non-luxury players have simply figured out how to engineer and insert a battery in an existing model. And I think that more of the luxury players taking the bespoke approach and creating a brand new model, so the Tycon is a brilliant example of this, is a better route. And then what that did is that created trust with the consumer that Porsche was, at the very least, a fast follower in this space. And Porsche is very proud to be a fast follower think that's an important distinction to make. Tesla paved the way. But once that launch happened, then they went in and they electrified the Macan and the Cayenne. And so that pathway, I think from a consumer standpoint, was very palatable. And same is true for many of these other brands. But I can't underscore the performance piece enough because when the Taycan came out, you know, it was one of Porsche's, I think, the fastest vehicle that they had ever made. And so that was super important to say, hey, this car has specialness aside from just being an EV. This is not a token EV. This is about performance and that's Porsche's DNA. And so every brand has to think about what they stand for. What are those few core principles? And the EV really needs to embody those and not just be an EV that they're electrifying on the existing line. I think that's a super important distinction. And then I would go back to, again, the tools that they're using and the way that they're thinking about the timing from design to production. That needs to get upgraded because in this space we don't have the same amounts of time between cycles that the automotive industry has taken, and then we have to go back into the supply chain and understand why that amount of time is being taken, and really upgrade the way that they think about transparency and incentives and contracting there too.
0: You have to think the whole thing that the first time I drove a Taycan it was a rocket ship. Wow, that's what I was describing. It was wow. But the other thing that stood out to me, and the Porsche engineers would love to hear this, was the quality of the build. Having driven the other day, previous day before that, a competitor vehicle that can go very fast as well. And then it had an okay interior. And I got in the Taycan. Oh, I felt at home. This was really... Really well done. It was extremely well engineered. The layout, the drive handling. Porsche, frankly, did electrification right. There's no other way to describe it. They did it right and they respected the heritage of somebody that's going to spend a lot of money on the interior. They didn't overlook the interior. They thought about it. Let's look at another company that's taken a lukewarm approach to any new technology over the years, whether it be hybrid. Nope, never going to do that. Electrification. Nope, never going to do that. You know where I'm going? I'm going to Ferrari. Every time they say no, I have a running joke with my friends. Ferrari is eventually going to do it. It's a heritage brand, extremely low volume. It's an investment class into itself. How should a brand such as Ferrari approach electrification?
1: Good question. You know, for me, it comes down to, again, the DNA of the brand. And I mean, so you're into Ferrari. What would you say their DNA is? Like if you had to come up with three words?
0: It's racing. Okay. Racing, Ferrari yellow, tracks.
1: Okay, so participation in Formula E and thinking about how can an EV enhance the racing space, to me, that would be where I would start. Because again, it can't be taking existing makes and models And adding a battery to those because just the experience that you described with the Taycan, that's why that worked for you because there was newness around it. You weren't getting into a Porsche that you had already been in before and all of a sudden it's electric. It was an entirely new experience and they thought about the customer segment that was looking for an EV and specifically a Porsche EV. And the same has to be done for every other make and model out there.
0: They have to. Look at Lamborghini. They're only focused on the wow factor. I met some of their executives. I said, What's your strategy? We're focused on the wow factor. Okay. Well, that's really not going to sell me to drop a half a million dollars on a wow factor mobile when well, I could drop a half a million dollars on a forget on a waiting list, I might add, and get a Ferrari and in it's an investment class. So we have to get over that. But the one thing that's very, very clear here there's immense investment opportunities in mobility and they're only going to continue to grow. Where is Uplabs currently looking at these potential opportunities?
1: okay let's take it by vertical here because like i said it is a wild and chaotic space so on the car side definitely the entire ev life cycle all things battery related A lot on the after-sales side. So we talked about this, but that's an experience that gets ignored. So what happens after the dealer sells me my car? And this is something OEMs haven't traditionally had to think about, right? Because the dealer owns the relationship with the customer. So repair and maintenance is going to be one of the next ventures that we launch. We'll certainly do some things in battery end of life. I think also cybersecurity is another area as we do think about Porsche potentially pushing into autonomy. I think that will be later stage for them to be clear because they've been very clear that they're a driver's car. That's something that they want to invest in. On the airline side, we're certainly looking at supply chain and then maintenance there as well. So maintenance is a big driver of downtime and then ultimately uptime. We're also looking at network optimization, which is quite a cool area. So when, as an airline, I'm thinking about how I plan my routes... There are so many different factors that I can take into consideration. One is demand. A second is real-time macro events. Like we've seen, this has been the summer of Taylor Swift and Beyonce. So even just knowing when concerts and events are happening in an area, all the way down to where your crews are available. And really optimizing across all these variables is tricky. And so we're looking at sort of a system that would help us optimize across all of these different factors. I think beyond that, we're seeing a real Amazonification of expectations. And, you know, we work with another retailer in the big and bulky space. And so really thinking through how do I ship things in a way that's quicker, even in that space, because that's been quite ignored when you look at, you know, furniture and appliances and larger items that you're purchasing, because on Amazon, most everything can fit into a small envelope. But then also, how do I return those things? What are the logistics around that? We're also, I mentioned, very, very focused on software for hardware and teleoperation as a bridge to full autonomy is super interesting. So Telio, for example, is a construction company that's sensorizing equipment that our fund has invested in them. Very, very cool model there. There are a number of other models in that space as a bridge ultimately to where we can get to full autonomy. So many different spaces. And I think what's cool is we're in a partnership with Up Partners, which is a fund that's completely focused on the mobility space probably you know the most premier fund in mobility out there. We host an annual up summit that's happening in a few weeks where we bring about 250 of the brightest minds in mobility together. So super excited for that. But our fund gets to invest a little bit longer term even in space and then on the lab side we're a little bit more near term, really thinking about these very immediate and critical business problems that we see in you know spaces like automotive and airlines.
0: Telio's coming on in a few weeks so thank you for giving Telio a shout I'm looking forward to that conversation. Network optimization that was interesting. Today's podcast was with Gil West the Chief Operating Officer for Cruise. And we were talking about the Super Bowl. But now you're talking about Taylor Swift and Beyonce. That, Personally, that's more interesting. So if you look at Miss Swift, or you look at Miss Beyonce, and let's use the, you're out in California, so I'm going to use the Rose Bowl. Both artists can usually pack 120,000 people into the Rose Bowl for, I'll say, a multi-night performance. And let's just do simple math, three nights, 360,000 people. Going in and out of the Rose Bowl, for our listeners who have not been there, it's not easy, it's complicated. There's a golf course right there in the middle of working your way in and out. In a world with autonomy, and at some point I will go on the record and say, the Cayenne or the Macan will be the first to go autonomous for Porsche, and it will be a very well-selling vehicle because they will sell it as a service. But when you look at this and you're running it from an autonomy logistical standpoint, moving 120,000 individuals in and out of that stadium, is that where the network optimization comes in? Because on the backside of that, you mentioned the Amazon effect. Well, look at Miss Swift. What does she have? 50, 60 trailer loads that go with her to each – you have to move all that, and you have to move the crew in and out. So when you look at network optimization, are you looking at the whole network or are you looking at just segments of the network?
1: The whole network. And that's actually why this has been such a difficult thing to solve in the airline context and will be a very difficult thing to solve in the transportation context. One of the jobs that I have, though, is we need to figure out the use cases and pieces here. What does the product roadmap look like to get there? And then ultimately launch something that has that killer hook first. And so, for example, it could be understanding where your crew is in the airline space. So I was flying back from San Francisco a couple of weeks back And we got out on the tarmac and the pilot, the co-pilot actually timed out during that time. So they tried to take off. We missed it by minutes. Game over, right? So you're back at the airport, everybody unloads and they're looking for a new co-pilot. And so one of the things that you could imagine that would be a building block in all this is allowing your crew to tell you where they're located at any given time or proactively sign on for what is called an irregular operations event, which is what that was. So that's what the airlines spend their time doing, is trying to mitigate irregular operations events. And then on top of that, just run the airline for the other you know, 360 days a year where everything goes fine. But it's those meltdown events that cost them. And so what we need to do is... Get to this bigger vision, but do that in a way that solves for some of these more specific use cases. And that ultimately means that you're balancing maybe one or two variables at a time, in that case, crew and crew availability, but you're still getting to a bigger vision where you're balancing the things that I mentioned before. So, events and load factor there, pricing, macro events, what are interest rates doing? What does the housing market look like? All of this impacts fuel prices, for example. All of this impacts the pricing of the airline itself. So these are incredibly difficult problems. But I think that we're getting to a point where we have the data science capabilities to test out models and run live experiments and show corporations and large customers like this that we can generate value for them and really build that trust. Because a lot of these things are still being done very manually. They're in the minds of people who have worked in these industries for you know 20 or 30 years.
0: You need the data. Let's look at last summer when the U.S. New York Harbor refinery in New York was offline for a while. They didn't have the capacity. That was one of the most expensive places in the country, not low in the world, to fly in New York City because of the price of the fuel. You get that data. You can help the consumer understand. The airline can help them say, hey, avoid this market because the refinery is offline. Will they probably say that? No, but it's interesting. You get bumped from a flight. Well, then you start the countdown clock. You get a very angry consumer. I'll use the term not a happy camper. And they start blah, 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 blah. They're calling into the help desk. That's costing you money to have that person. And then at some point, you're going to have to pay them a $300 voucher or determine your number that gets very, very expensive. Then you're going to get the people that are to go on Reddit or go on X, formerly known as Twitter, and rave and start a tsunami of nonsense your way. And that's expensive. You could fix this essentially. Then you went from the not happy camper to the happy camper because a piece of technology told you if planes didn't take off by X time, not going to happen. You eliminate the friction. because nobody likes flying anymore.
1: You're right. It's a terrible customer experience for some of the time. And so what's interesting is resolution is really important. JetBlue actually has a higher NPS on flights with irregular operations because one of the things that they're very good at is resolving issues with the customer. And so this is another space that we've been looking at. And actually we pitched a concept. I can share it because it's not moving forward right now, but I think it's very, very cool. So one of my team members came up with this concept of how can we sort of calculate automatically someone's headspace? So if I am flying Delta, for example, and I have been experienced a delay the past 3 times that I've flown and I'm delayed again. I'm probably very upset with Delta. And so what we can actually understand with this algorithm is when am I about to churn? And that's something that no airline really understands right now is the profile of a customer who is about to leave them forever. And it's one of the only industries where you hear that I'm never flying X airline ever again. There are very few industries where that's the case where someone cancels you so immediately. But you're right, it's down to resolution. There's always going to be irregular operations and there will always be problems, but it's how you resolve those with the customer.
0: It is. I consulted for one of the big three airlines years and years ago, and we were looking at not the detail as you, but we we're looking at how we eliminate churn. And one thing we were pitched by a very famous individual, company was Netflix, I'll leave the executive's name out of this. Well, if you put the Netflix logo next to this on Expedia and Google Flights, they're going to be more inclined to fly because you have availability to Netflix. Ran internal studies that wasn't true, but it was a step there because I was flying from New York back down to I live in Florida and the airline kept delaying, delaying, delaying. And eventually, got to about two o'clock in the morning, and they finally canceled the flight. And I said, Okay, so I'm in New York City, the, the hotel room's $1,000. You got to pay $1,000 for me to stay there. No, we're not paying that. We're paying $99. Where in New York City can you stay for $99 that doesn't have cockroaches and this and that? And I'm still in dispute with this airline today, and I got a $500 or sorry credit. Meanwhile, I had to go to a competitor of theirs and spend thousands upon thousands to get out the next day. But I'm the category churn, and I have this $500 credit, and I'm not going to fly you because of that. Somebody should get on the phone with me and talk this through. Your data could do that.
1: Totally. And also know where your headspace is to begin with and actually calm you down and have the right pathways and language to use to get you to a better place completely but it is ludicrous. It's a horrible customer experience when these things happen and it does come down to that resolution.
0: Word of advice to the, every major airline listening, because I know you do listen, do not offer a $99 a night voucher to stay in a hotel in New York City. It's impossible. If you offered a decent amount, we wouldn't be having this issue. And if you were honest about the flight getting canceled, we wouldn't have this issue. But I'm not going down the airline world because that's going to be a whole nother conversation here, Caitlin. Going back to mobility, in your opinion, what is the future of Mobility.
1: I would say electric, autonomous, and shared. And I think a lot of people underestimate the business model changes that are going to happen to support this. So you know there have been some studies around autonomy that say it won't necessarily lead to safer roads because people are going to expect to travel more miles. And so it can drive that up. But you know, at the end of the day, I think we're going to see such significant business model shifts that are going to mitigate a lot of the negative externalities that you'll see. And for me, I'm looking forward to this shared world. So I think there are different use cases in my day-to-day commute. I would love to hop into a vehicle that I don't own, sit there, get my stuff done, go to work. And then on the weekends, drive a 911.
0: Yes. That's a beautiful, beautiful world. And I was part of the original pilot program where Porsche tried that, where you could get a vehicle and then you could change it all the time. But unfortunately, not quoting the executive who told me this, but they found cars in the side of the road and they ran out of gas because you had those customers that were calling you, uh, you Porsche, to fill them up. What this is going to come down to at the end of the day is experiences. Autonomy is going to unlock economic experiences that are going to benefit for thinking startups that are looking to take risks and invest in the space. That's where this is going. Caitlin, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, it's been a lot of fun. What would you like our listeners to take away with them today?
1: I think we've got problems right in front of our faces. I'm not a metaverse person. And that's part of what I love about mobility is I experience these frictions every single day of my life. And I want to continue to develop software for hardware. I think we have a lot of beautifully designed goods and products out there that need that digital layer that you and i discussed so that's what i want to keep doing over the next few years
0: you're doing a really good job and i can't wait to see what companies you grow and graduate think differently focus on design it's a proven method that works the future is bright the future is autonomous the future is thinking like a software company caitlin thank you so much for coming on the road to autonomy today
1: my pleasure grayson thank you for having me
0: If you've enjoyed listening, please kindly rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to get in touch? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Road to Autonomy, or email podcast at road 2 The Road to Autonomy Podcast is produced by the Road to Autonomy LLC. The views and opinions expressed at the Road to Autonomy Podcast do not necessarily reflect those views of the Road to Autonomy, its subsidiaries, its shareholders, directors, investors, or partners. The content discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, investment, tax, or business advice. Nothing is a recommendation that you purchase, sell, or hold any security or other investment or that you pursue any investment style or strategy. The content of this podcast is presented on an as-is basis with no warranties expressed or implied of any kind. Financial mentions about companies in the Road to Autonomy Index and discussions about the Road to Autonomy Indexes? are for informational purposes only, and should not be relied upon when making any investment decision. Furthermore, an inclusion of security within the Road to Autonomy Index is not a recommendation by the Road to Autonomy Indices LLC to buy, sell, or hold that such security, nor is it considered to be investment advice.